So we're in Luke chapter 11, and before we jump into that, um, I wanted to just make a quick remark in regard to um, last week. Um, I hope that you were encouraged and, and maybe even excited about the missions presentation from Cameron and Amanda. Um, I think one of the greatest joys in hearing them speak to us is it lets us have a face to what missions looks like um, and, and who is going, uh, or at least a part of who is, who is going. And so in our particip- participation in partnership with them in other areas of missions, we have a face. We have something that we can pray for, people that we can very particularly pray for. And so I was very grateful to see and that the Lord was allowing us to see the upcoming work of the kingdom of God and whatever our role will look like into praying for them, supporting, supporting them, encouraging them, whatever the Lord may have, I pray that he would use us uh, to, be, uh, to be useful for his kingdom and for them. Now, back to Luke. It's like an old friend. Right, once you get reacquainted, it doesn't take long. You just kind of pick up right where you were. And so let's recap for just a moment. In, in Luke, we have seen some incredibly important things. Some glorious truths about the, the person of Christ and, and the works of Christ and how He has been ministering and doing ministry in that region of Galilee and Capernaum Nazareth and areas like that. And if you remember all the way back to the very beginning in in the Gospel of Luke, we we see Luke's intended purposes for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was so that we as the church would have certainty. There's not very many things I have certainty on that that I I can confidently say, right? But this is something that he's writing that we would be certain. As much as and even more, as the effects of gravity and the sun coming up and the sun going down, that we can have certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. And what he has done is what he has done because of who he is. And we have seen his divine authority, that divine authority being expressed over evil, over disease and sicknesses, the authority over over nature, how he calmed the storms. How he multiplied bread and fish. How he had the authority over life and death. In just ten chapters, we, we, we've read how Jesus has brought two dead people back to life. The widow's son and Jairus' daughter. We've seen how Jesus has had the authority to forgive sin. No one did that. No one can do that. He taught with an authority that was unlike anyone else. He sent out disciples and apostles and then giving them the same authority to heal, to cast out demons, to preach the gospel and the coming of the kingdom. Now, coming up to chapter 10, 
He showed us that He is the greatest of Samaritans. That He would be the one who would lay down His life as a ransom so that others could live. Those who have been rejected by the world and abused by sin, He would pay that ransom and lay down His life for them. But yet it was in the last week of chapter 10 that kind of brings us into chapter 11. And and that is the story of Mary and Martha. And if you remember, there was an evening that Jesus was coming over to Mary and Martha's house, which, by the way, those are the sisters of Lazarus, another dead person he's going to bring to life. Mary and Martha were preparing for Jesus to be there, but they both prepared and served and did in different ways. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to every word. And, and Martha was thinking that she was honoring Jesus just as much, if not more, because she's waiting tables. She's preparing food. She's fixing everything up. And it was then Martha who, even though she thought she was serving Jesus the way that she should be serving Jesus, and Mary should have been serving the way that I'm serving. And she said, Jesus, why am I doing all the work? How could you let her sit there? And this is what Jesus said. Martha... You are worried. You are bothered about things that don't matter. Essentially, that's what it says. If you're looking at your Bibles, you're like, I don't say that. But essentially, it says, you're worried about things that don't, that, that don't matter because Mary has chosen the one thing necessary, the portion that is greater. And that transitions into what we're going to talk about this morning in Luke chapter 11. Because in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives us more of that glorious portion. And the disciples ask for it. So look at Luke chapter 11. We're just going to read the first four verses. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. That's John the Baptist. And and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That's where we're going to stop. This is the word of the Lord. And may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see His holy, inspired, inerrant word for His glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen. Now, I know this doesn't come to any surprise to you, but but prayer isn't something that just comes naturally to us. It's not something that we're just ingrained and born with as as a natural giftedness. In fact, it's actually kind of hard for some of us. You know, unbelievers, they may ask for prayer... And they may even pray themselves at times. But that's not the natural disposition unless something is driving them there. Something is putting them there. But when someone becomes a Christian, 
When we become redeemed and restored to fellowship with, with God and we are reconciled to Him through Christ and the Holy Spirit is given to us and transforms us and regenerates us in such a way that we have these new desires. And yes, they may be small, they may be rudimentary, and they may need to be cultivated and grown through, through discipleship, but there's this new desire of greater intimacy to commune with God that wasn't there before. Now, there is no doubt in my mind, because I know myself, that each of us would agree that we should pray more. I don't think there's a person not in this room that would say, no, I'm good, I think I pray enough. And so that's not the point of this sermon this morning. It's not to the heap a guilt upon each and every one of us that we already feel that maybe we should be praying more or differently. Prayer is one of the most beautiful, encouraging, and life-giving things that we can do. But on the other side, prayer could also be one of the most frustrating. We, we all have stories. We all have stories of, and we need to hear these stories, right? Of, of these wonderful things that the Lord does where we have this deep desire or need or we have this, this wants and, and so we just commit ourselves to prayer. I mean, just flat out, I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray and I'm going to continue to pray and even if it takes years upon years, right at the right time, the Lord shows up and answers the prayer and He saves the day, so to speak. We, we all have testimonies like that. We can share examples of that in our lives. And that's exciting and joyful and amazing and that we rejoice and we get other people to rejoice with us. But then there's this frustrating, perplexing side of prayer that no one really talks about unless maybe you're in a, a small group and you can just talk about it. But no one really talks about it too much because it doesn't fit on a coffee cup. It's not going to fit on the church signs underneath the thing where it says, God answers an email. It, 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 it doesn't sound as good from the pulpit. And that is when, when we lay out everything to the Lord in prayer. For that one thing that we just desperately believe that we need or we, we need this certain situation worked out in our lives. And we're even, even though we are fully trusting that God will answer our prayer, because in our finite mind, to us, there's only one way this has got to go. I mean, there's, there's, there's only one way that it can go. God, I need this job. I, I, my, my child to be healthy, my marriage to, to, to get better. But then from God, there's silence. And then things get worse. But when we look at Luke 11, and we're going to do this for a couple weeks, in light of this beautiful joy that we can receive in praying, there's also this frustration. We need to seriously consider the words of Jesus. Seriously consider the words of Jesus when we face that high joy and that low perplexity of frustration. We need to understand the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus going out and praying 
isn't something new, even in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the themes that just is flowing through. Jesus is always praying. Jesus is always praying. In fact, the Gospel of Luke actually highlights Jesus' prayers more than than any other of the, the Gospels. He's praying all the time. He withdraws and he prays. Before something big, like when he chose the apostles, he was off alone praying. He prays aloud. He prays with his disciples. Jesus, I mean, clearly we understand, we can see that Jesus values those quiet moments of of being alone and being in silence and and communing with the Holy Spirit and with with his Father. And the disciples are clued into this, aren't they? And I think that's why we get this question that they ask. Jesus teaches how to pray as John taught his disciples. So clearly there's something, there's an expectation that, that they want to pray like Jesus prays because Jesus has some, there's a connection between Jesus praying and Jesus' display of power. And they want that. And, and I think that's good. What a, what a great question to ask. What a wonderful question to ask Jesus. And Jesus gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is like the condensed Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke compared to what we know about Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. But I think if we looked at this a little bit differently, and I know I'm not going to change the language. Don't change it. it. It's called the Lord's Prayer. But it really, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer, shouldn't it? Because it's more for us. Jesus isn't praying, forgive us of our sins, or forgive me of my sins. Now Jesus is going to teach this model prayer to them. But if, if you look at it, it's, it's not really the kind of prayer that you're going to teach someone who's kind of at square one on how to pray. He's not going to t- he teaches something that's even greater than that. It's, it's not the, the kindergarten kind of prayer. When, when Jesus, or, or when, when you're teaching a child how to read, where do you start? Do you start with handing them a dictionary and say, read, or study these and you'll learn how to read? No, you start with the ABCs and the one, two, threes. ABC, EFG, teach them the little song. And, 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 then you, and, and then you teach them how to, what those letters sound like, that they all have individual sounds. And then when you put those particular sounds together, then you can eventually learn how to make words. And then you can start figuring out that, oh, I can see that word and I can make that sound. And then you start putting sentences together. And before you know it, years later sometimes, you begin to read. You begin to see sentences and paragraphs and then you get to read books. But, but Jesus doesn't take a systematic approach here at teaching his boys how to read. Jesus puts them in a sink or swim situation. He gives them a high-level varsity prayer. And he starts out saying, Lydia, I know what you want. Whenever you pray, is what he says, or when you pray. Now, looking at the word when, it can be translated as whenever. So Jesus is saying, when, whenever you're praying, 
When, whenever you are in your car, whenever you are on your knees, whenever you are on a, on a walk, whenever you are in a store, you're at home, you're at work, you're at school, whenever you close your eyes, this is the kind of high-level prayer you need to pray. Father, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. And here's what I mean. Jesus intends that all our prayers be this God-centered. Father, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. Not man-centered. It doesn't even come to us. And so this morning, we're, we're just going to look at these first two lines of this prayer. And I'm going to show you how all of our prayers are to be God-centered. And when our prayers are God-centered, it's going to, in a sense, help strengthen us when prayer may seem perplexing and frustrating. Because we can trust in our Father, whose name is to be hallowed and whose kingdom is coming. We're going to see God's supremacy in this prayer. So I want to start off with that very first word that Jesus gives us. He says, Father. Matthew says, Our Father. I memorized it, I guess, in King James. I don't know who art in heaven, who is in heaven. The first thing Jesus tells us when we pray is we are to call God Father. Now, to us, we've, we've said this prayer thousands of times, and for thousands of years now, Christians have been reciting this prayer and have been using that word Father. And we've been using that word Father maybe so much that it might have lost some of its luster and meaning. Of course God is our Father. But go back and let's put this in context back to that first century. Jesus called God his Father. Essentially, that's what got him killed. Calling God his Father was explosive. And for him to say this to his disciples was like pouring more gas on the Father. Jesus called God his Father, speaking of his union with him as the Son. He would say, I and the Father are one. He who knows me knows the Father. And he who knows the Son, or who knows the Father, knows the Son. That's pretty much what got him killed. But he says, we too are to call him Father. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel refers to God as Father only 14 times. Only, only 14 times. And that actually may seem a lot, but out of 39 books of the Bible, it's only 14 times. And in every single usage of the word, it's more like God as an impersonal father of Israel. Sort of like how we as a, as a country, we would say that George Washington is the father of the United States. He's our, our, our father. But we would never say, George Washington's my, my dad. That's the usage of the Old Testament of, of God the Father. See, to the, to the Jews, they wouldn't even say the covenant name of God, meaning they wouldn't say Yahweh. They wouldn't say it. 
And so what they, they did was is they, uh, uh, because they were afraid of getting it wrong and offending God and God striking them lightning or whatever it may be, or earth swallowing them up. So they, they invented a name. They took the, the consonants of Yahweh and they mixed it with the vowels of Adonai and they came up with Jehovah. So the word Jehovah is actually a made-up word, so just to let you all know. It's a made-up word for a name of God that they came up with because they didn't want to say Yahweh. They put it together with Adonai. And the whole point of that was because God, Father of Israel, was to be held at a distance. We're going we're to hold him out at a, in a, a transcendent dif- distance. But Jesus calls him Father. Jesus calls him Father intimately. He is my pop. He is my, my dad. The only time Jesus does not call God his Father is when he is on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22 saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In all the Gospels, Jesus uses the word Father to refer to God his father, more than 60 times. Compare that to the Old Testament usage of 14. As Jesus heard, as Jesus is heard of teaching with the authority like none other, Jesus prayed like none other, didn't he? Nobody prayed, my God, my father. So here's the thing. Jesus is inviting us to pray like him. And to pray this kind of intimacy with God. Let's let's just unpack that just a little bit more. The the word that Jesus would have have used to say Father was was not as formal as maybe some would like. It was probably the Aramaic word Abba, which means, which some of us don't like the translation of Daddy, but in a sense it's, it's like that. Maybe we can make it a little bit uh, more reverent, dearest Father. When, when, when he tells us to pray, dearest Father, when he's telling us to pray this way, dearest Father, Jesus is then asking us to share in that intimate sonship. That intimate sonship of calling our God Father, dearest Father. And, and we can pray this way because some people are like, well, how can you pray that way? You don't really know God. Well, this is how we can pray this way. We can pray confidently and rightly because of Christ. Because of Christ's atoning death on the cross and resurrection. He then, because of the cross, has then brought us in union with God. Union and communion with God, which speaks of our relationship. <laughs> She's figuring it out. You see her? Jesus has transformed our relationship, hasn't he? From distant, from far off, from, from scared and fear of getting his name wrong, to now what? From enemy, right? From enemy. We once were his enemy, but now he's brought us what? Close, tight, in the same bond of a father and son. So when we pray, God the Father, we are speaking of our unique sonship with God. Think about how the, the same word of 
love and relationship that, that then comes out of our mouths when we pray, Dearest Father, is the same words of delight and intimacy that cross Jesus' lips. When we seriously consider God as our dearest Father, it's also a mark of our authentic faith. Galatians chapter 4 speaks of this and helps us out here. In verses 6 through 7, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father, dearest Father, Daddy, Father. Verse 7, So you are no longer slaves, but sons. Who can, who can bring that kind of transition of relationships but God? And if sons, then heirs through God. We are His sons, and if sons, then the Holy Spirit is in our hearts, and if the Holy Spirit is in our hearts, and the Holy Spirit is testifying to us, the Spirit of, uh, of, of the Son, sorry, go back then what's that mean if the Holy Spirit is in us testifying these things to us? It means we're a Christian. It means we, we have authentic faith. Romans 8 speaks to the same thing. Love this text. Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. You see, before you became a Christian, you, you you've might have known or had a vague understanding of God. And, and you might have grew up in a church in a sense that you understood that God is the Father, and then there's God the Son, and maybe even the Holy Spirit. But there was never a personal, meaningful God, Father. But when you came to Christ, God became warm and personal as dear Father or Dad. This may be why for some of us it's so hard to pray or why we struggle to pray because we stay in this perpetual arm's length from him. Because if we think that if we get too close, that God, the Father, might be disappointed and might be ashamed. Because deep down, we all know we're dirty and scoundrels. So in our minds, we're still considering God as this holy, righteous judge, which of course he is. Which of course he is. But according to the text that we have just read, he has made us sons. And then also according to Romans chapter 3, the righteous judge, which is God, has dealt with our sins, has dealt with that guilt, has dealt with that, what we think he's going to be disappointed in us at, he's dealt with that on the cross. Christ bore the penalty of our sin, of your sin, and he alone, Jesus alone, satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. And God is working out His will to make us His children. And that is why Paul says what he says in Galatians 4 and Romans 8. 
He is our loving, dearest Father who has made us righteous. He is the loving Father who will play catch with you, who will take you camping or hold your hand at the mall, whatever that perception of a loving Father is. He is that and that much more. There's no more fear. There's no more fear in condemnation or rejection or even wrath. And for some of us today, we're struggling with that. And Romans 8 and Galatians chapter 4 tells us that the Holy Spirit is bearing on us right now that we would just cry out, Abba, Father. I pray that you will hear that. You know, we use the terms in our families, mom, mama, mommy, daddy, dad, son, daughter, and why? Why do we, why do we use those familial terms? Because they're, they're terms of affection. They're terms of love. And when we call God the Father, there's a, there's a sweetness to that, isn't it? There's a sweetness to it when our children call us daddy and mommy. There's also a security for those who say those things. To the children who say that to their, to their parents, mom or dad, there's a security for them. And Jesus called God his Father. And was there anyone in all of the world that was ever more secure and safe than Jesus Christ? Yes, Jesus suffered the brutality of human sinfulness and bore the wrath of God on our behalf and experienced a horrific death. But Jesus was confident in his sovereign Father. That there was nothing that he was putting in his way that wasn't a part or not against his will for his life. And Jesus was safe and secure and comforting in the fact that his Father was sovereign and that what he willed would be done no matter what. His will and sovereignty is always and was always good and right. We are, or are we not being brought into the same truths when we pray, Father? Are we not being brought into the same light and intimacy and relationship when we pray, Dearest Dad? It's assuring us that we belong to Him and that we will never be forgotten or abandoned. That He is our Father. And so we pray to Him, dearest Father. But secondly, Jesus tells us to pray for His glory. Now I know it says to, to hallow His name, but that's what that means. So that whenever you pray, whenever you pray, anytime, here's what it looks like. Father, hallowed, be your name. Meaning this, meaning great is your name. Let your name and your renown and your fame and your reputation and all that you are be seen and magnified and glorified and exalted and loved and delighted and pursued by everything and everyone. That's what that means when we say, hallowed be your name. Yes, we call Him Father. And there's intimacy there, but we don't lose the fact that it's His name to be hallowed. That it is His name to be holy and reverenced. 
And this is what I meant by earlier, how our prayers are God-centered. Because we're praying to our Father, and our deepest desire in everything is that His name would be hallowed. So, so whatever it is, whatever the, the cry of our hearts are, whatever it is, the thing that we, that we, that we want, our deepest desire, even greater than that, is that we want God's name to be magnified. And even if our prayers are not answered in the way that we want them to go, to God be the glory. Not my will, but your will be done. We want his name to be magnified. This is the line of thinking of God-centeredness that is just flowing throughout the entire Lord's Prayer. Hallowing God's name is, is kind of like the, the, uh, the, the, the topic, right? The, the thesis statement of the whole prayer, that God's name would be hallowed. Hallowed in our lives, in his kingdom, in the, the provisions that he gives us, in, in the forgiveness that he gives us, and then we extend to others, in his sovereign protection over sin. The secret to prayer, Eliza, this is a, this is kind of a quoting line here. The secret to prayer is that all of our prayers are to be God-centered, like that. We, we can't take the different types, different parts of this prayer and split them up and forget who the God of the universe is. He is the focal point. It's God who is created and is sustaining. It is God's will. He is the point of all of history. He is the point of all of our salvation. And he is working all things out to the glory of his name and for his renown. So when, when his prayer, this hallowed be your name, becomes our deepest desire, then, then once again we are joining with Jesus in what he is already doing. Soli Deo Gloria. But there's something else happening here when we pray this. There's something else that's, that's happening when we, when we pray, hallowed be your name, and our, our deepest longing for His name and His fame and His renown to be spread even above and beyond what we want. When we are praying this, it's also exposing the idolatry that exists in all of us. You see, when you got that one thing whatever it may be, that one thing that is ultimate, that, that one thing that you want, the thing that we think we need above anything else, and that becomes our, our goal of pleading and pleading with Jesus to get that one thing or to do that one thing for us, instead of saying, your name be glorified, your will be done, your name be hallowed, and be great in my heart, and your name be worshipped, but instead, it's about that one thing. I want this. I deserve this. I should get this. I want this thing to, to play out the way I, I think it should go. Then that's idolatry. To want that one thing above the glory of the name of Christ and the glory of the, the name of God is idolatry. And in the end, when we're praying idolatrous ways. It's not about the name of Christ. It's not about God's name being made known. It's about what we want. And we're just using Jesus as a means to get that. 
But praying, hallowed be your name, is a correcting of our hearts, isn't it? It's a a realigning of our hearts to expose and point out those idolatrous things that we may want. So we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. But there's one more thing we're going to cover this morning that he tells us to pray and how to pray, and that is that we pray for the coming of his kingdom. The line of thinking doesn't change again. It's all for his glory. It's God-centered. It's his kingdom. It's not ours. It's his kingdom. And this is deep. There's different levels of your kingdom come. The first level being that it's the desire of ours, the desire of every Christian, that the rule and reign of our Heavenly Father would just exist everywhere. We desire the rule and reign of our Heavenly Father everywhere. And the prayer of, Father, your kingdom come, acknowledges that. It acknowledges that we believe that there is this coming day that there is a real decisive time in the future when the kingdom will come once and for all. We call this the second advent, the, the Christ's second coming, or the, the final consummation. When Christ will come back, He will judge the world, and He will set up His eternal kingdom. That's a deep prayer. That's a deep prayer of yearning. And as Christians who still exist and still live in a broken and fallen world, our desire is for our hearts and our lives to come under Christ's rule. And believing and trusting that when He comes back, we will be made pure. And all that deceit and distrust and shame and fear and sin will all be banished. No more evil, no more sin, wickedness. Everything will be gone. All of our conversations and relationships, all of our behaviors and all our motives will be pure and done for the glory of God. Don't you long for that? Pray for that day. So in in praying, your kingdom come, that's first, that's what we are are praying for. But but we also know that Jesus has already come. So the the kingdom is is coming, right? The kingdom is, is here, but it's not fully here yet. There is this future that's that's coming, but also there is, a, there is a, the idea, the reality of the kingdom is already here. And, and as a church, we are a present reality of the kingdom that's already here. We are, we are a small yet imperfect picture of that coming kingdom. That's why our relationships are different. That's why the way we talk to one another, we pray for one another, we love one another and serve one another are totally different than other relationships. So the second idea is because Jesus has already come and we're praying that your kingdom is coming is that we want people to be brought into obedience to the Father's will. We're praying your kingdom come. We're also praying that others and more people would would come under the obedience of the Father's will. And that includes ourselves. That's why Matthew tacks on your kingdom come and your will be done. Because of that, that second idea of, of we want others to come underneath the, the, the will of God. And so we pray for His kingdom to come. So that everyone who is in God's kingdom will strive to do God's will and that others will be brought into God's kingdom. 
Right? So then the kingdom of God then isn't just some, some ethereal distant land like Oz that we're trying to get to so that the great wizard can help us. No. The kingdom of God is something very personal and now. Something that we are existing in now. It's very personal. And so when we're praying, your kingdom come, let's, it, it goes a little bit deeper for us. Because what we want is, when we're praying that, is, is no matter what my will is, we want God's will to be done. And so praying this idea is, is that our will then becomes redirected to God's will. We, we have a word for that in Christianity, in the church. We call that repentance. When you pray, your kingdom come, that leads us to repentance. Because it aligns our will with God's will. Sin is going on our own and doing our own will, and repentance is turning from our will and toward God's will. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven actually, is at hand. He says, repent. Turn your will from you to God's. Secondly, this prayer demands our commitment. Remember what Jesus said earlier in Luke, actually in chapter 9. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Praying for the kingdom of come is, is our recommitment to keep going, to keep walking, to keep, to keep moving, to keep following, and, and keep going and not to look back. Shameless plug, join us for the program's progress and see that on Wednesday nights. And third, the kingdom of God is to be pursued and desired above all else. Again, the highest level of prayer that we can get. Sink or swim. Pray, your kingdom come, because it is the deepest desire. It's what we should desire above anything else. And to pray this way, it just destroys nominal Christianity. It destroys easy believism and and easygoing Christianity, which is not real, by the way. It's not real. For For his kingdom to come and for his kingdom to be spread, that is to make his glory made known, to show. So, so to hallow His name, and we want that hallowing to go throughout the world, then we pray for His kingdom to come and for others to come underneath the obedience to, to God's will. And so praying for the kingdom of God comes alive here. Because I, like many, I, I desire for, for God's kingdom to come here in Statesboro. You may think, well, they're... God's kingdom is known here. Maybe. But more, I still, there's lost people still everywhere that can come underneath the obedience of the will of God. And yet in our prayers, we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. But let's, let me ask you this, though. What if it is our desire, and I pray that it is, it's our desire for God's kingdom to come. And we want to see God's kingdom more and more here in Statesboro. And we want to be a part of that. We absolutely do. And yet we, we see God answering those prayers. 
but not for our own benefit. Not, not for our own benefit, meaning, meaning this. We see God growing other churches, but not our own. What does it look like for us to desire the kingdom of God for His glory and fame? But He chooses sovereignly not to use us. How do we respond? This prayer that Jesus gives us shows us, doesn't it? And it's not about me. It's about His kingdom. It's about His glory. I mean, my, my heart and my, my thought is, is, is that we would be a, a good church. And if we are a good church, then, then surely He would draw unbelievers and use us. But if it's God's will to be done and not my will to be done, can the Lord be trusted with that? Can we rejoice in the, the building of the kingdom of God in those ways? And still be able to pursue and desire the kingdom with as much zeal as we would if we were multiplying and growing and people were coming. Can we still trust that the Lord's plan is good and that we still have a part to play in praying for His kingdom to come? Now this is kind of a hard sermon to land, but I'm going to try to land it anyways by doing two things. First is going back to our, our first point. Is your heart and mind aligned with the fact that God is your Father? If you're in Christ, is, is that, has that aligned for you that He is your Father? And I, and I mean this in the intimate sense that Jesus prayed, Father, dearest Father. I mean, doesn't that just blow our minds? Does that excite your heart? Does that draw you closer to Him? Doesn't that change the perspective then of prayer altogether that it's not duty but delight? Non-Christians don't experience that intimacy because He is not their Father. He is their Judge. My hope is that, that the Scripture has shown us that as we have received the Holy Spirit that even this morning... The Spirit He's given us is the Spirit of adoption as sons. And that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness upon our hearts that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Secondly, what are the motives behind our, behind our prayer? What are the things that we are asking for in prayer? Is it truly to hallow the name of God and to make much of Jesus or in the end, is it really about us? And we might have some idolatry to confess and to repent this morning, and that's okay. It's good. May it expose us and make us more like Christ. Don't run from that. Redirect your will to God's. We can repent of. We can glorify Him. But if there's that one thing that you want... There's that one thing that you are praying for, that one thing that you want so bad. Ask yourself, ask yourself, have you considered his name 
to be made known greater than that. So prayer becomes no longer this means to an end, this grocery list of what I can get out of God about me and treating God like a genie, but it becomes about His glory. It becomes about making Him known to glorify him, his fame and his supremacy, that he would be hallowed no matter how he chooses to answer in those requests and in those needs that we may have. I am, I am finite. He is infinite. He infinitely knows better than me and that I can trust him to that end. What a privilege is ours. What a privilege it is of ours that we get to hallow God's name in this world. Isn't that amazing? It's not what I would have chose. Knowing me, I wouldn't have picked me. And we get to spill then over. We get then to spill over to this, to this world, this God-centeredness that is very much a me-centered world. And live and devote ourselves to this highest and greatest of prayers that Jesus has given us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done for your glory and for our joy. Amen.